We're reading this morning from Philemon chapter 1, verses 1 through 25. Paul, a prisoner of Christ Jesus, and Timothy, our brother, to Philemon, our dear friend and fellow worker, also to Aphia, our sister, and Archippus, our fellow soldier, and to the church that meets near home. Grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I always thank my God as I remember you in my prayers, because I hear about your love for all his holy people and your faith in the Lord Jesus. I pray that your partnership with us in the faith may be effective in deepening your understanding of every good thing we share for the sake of Christ. Your love has given me great joy and encouragement because you, brother, have refreshed the hearts of the Lord's people. Therefore, although in Christ I could be bold and order you to do what you ought to do, yet I prefer to appeal to you on the basis of love. It is as none other than Paul, an old man and now also a prisoner of Christ Jesus, that I appeal to you for my son Onesimus, who became my son while I was in chains. Formerly, he was useless to you, but now he has become useful both to you and to me. I am sending him, who is my very heart, back to you. I would have liked to keep him with me so that he could take your place in helping me while I'm in chains for the gospel. But I did not want to do anything without your consent, so that any favor you do would not seem forced, but would be voluntary. Perhaps the reason he was separated from you a little while was that you might, was that you might have him back forever, no longer as a slave, but better than a slave, as a dear brother. He is very dear to me, but even dearer to you, both as a fellow man and as a brother in the Lord. So if you consider me a partner, welcome him as you would welcome me. If he has done you any wrong or owes you anything, charge it to me. I, Paul, am writing this with my own hand. I will pay it back, not to mention that you owe me your very self. I do wish, brother, that I may have some benefit from you in the Lord. Refresh my heart in Christ. Confident of your obedience, I write to you, knowing that you will do even more than I ask. And one more thing. Prepare a guest room for me, because I hope to be restored to you in answer to your prayers. Epaphras, my fellow prisoner in Christ Jesus, sends you greetings. And so do Mark, Aristarchus, Demas, and Luke, my fellow workers. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit. Well, good morning. And uh, as I was walking around saying hello to people, seeing a number of people visiting with us this morning, which happens in the course of the summer. And so one of the things that we typically do in the summer around Elevation is we try to do a series that doesn't require that you're here every week because people tend to be away a lot in the summer. Uh, And so just a very brief introduction. So we're doing a series, but if you've missed the last few weeks, all you need to know is that what we're doing is exploring some parts of the Bible that are often kind of neglected or left aside. Uh, They're not the most significant stories. They're not the ones that make the headlines. They're not the ones that if you've been around church a long time, you would have grown up hearing. And so we're trying to wade into those different waters and see what we can find. So far, we've been looking at these overlooked stories from the Old Testament. And honestly, everything is a little wilder in the Old Testament, so it's easier to find those stories. I mean, we've got worldwide floods, we've got... um, 
royal scandals. We've got giant fish swallowing people whole. We've got naked prophets. I mean, the Old Testament is a chock full of stories that we can tell. Um, But as we stumble through the pages of Scripture, we come across the writings of Paul, who was formerly a persecutor of Christians, and then he turned into a missionary church planner, pastor, and theologian. And he was also the author of a good chunk of the New Testament. Uh, In your pews there, there are these Bibles with kind of the red pages there, and there's a little introduction to the letters of Paul, and I just want to read a couple of sentences because I think it gives us a good good setup for this morning's theme, which is not one of those wild Old Testament stories, but it actually comes from the pages of one of Paul's letters. Paul's letters are the oldest Christian documents we have. The first of them was written within 25 years of Jesus' death, and the last may have been written before any of the Gospels. We can learn from Paul's letters a great deal about Paul's faith and his understanding of what Jesus Christ means for the life of the ordinary Christian. Now, that's a good way to spend our time, trying to figure out what is life of faith like for an ordinary Christian. So, he goes on to here. There's a, there's a list of all the different books and letters that he wrote. And finally, we get to this little one called Philemon, uh, which is the only surviving private letter of Paul. It is a plea for Philemon to forgive the runaway slave Onesimus and receive him back as a brother in Christ. Paul's plea is for Philemon to allow Jesus to shape the way that he lives in his life in a very specific way, which is a good way for us to spend our time. So, as we always have to do with these random stories, a little bit of background to set us up. Uh, This letter is a tale of two cities, Colossae and Rome. Now, in Colossae, there was a church that had been meeting for perhaps around five years. And when you think about um, a church, it's probably not anything like the church that we are gathering and meeting in this morning. It would have been in someone's home. And uh, it would have been specifically in the home of this man, Philemon, whose name is on the top of this letter. The fact that the church in Colossae met in his home, it tells us a couple of things. First of all, that Philemon was wealthy. Um, So that's one of the things that we learn about him. We can also gather that Philemon was wealthy based on the fact that as we learn in the content of the letter, he owned a slave. So he had means. He had enough means to have a house big enough to host a church, and he had enough means to actually own a slave. So this is one of the things, this is what we know about Colossae. Now the other city is Rome, and I probably don't need to say too much about that because Rome is one of the more famous cities in the world. It is an ancient city, and at the time it was really the epicenter of that part of the world. It is an obviously important city, and it is also the location where Paul is imprisoned for his faith. So Paul is in prison writing this letter to Philemon and his church family across the sea there in uh, Colossae. Just to give you a sense of the antiquity of this letter, the Colosseum, perhaps one of Rome's most famous uh, um, buildings there, was not even constructed yet. So this uh, letter, this correspondence between Rome and Colossae was, was taking place before the Colosseum was even built. So we've got Onesimus, a slave owned by Philemon, and he had left Colossae and landed in Rome. Now, we don't know a lot of the details here. We really don't have a whole lot, but we can maybe, with conjecture, can maybe say he wanted to escape. Like, he was like, I'm tired being a slave. I want another life. And so under some circumstances, he left Colossae, and he ends up in Rome. We don't know exactly what happened there, but he was probably trying to get lost in the crowds. Big city, tons of people there. He's just going to get lost, and eventually his master will stop looking for him, and he'll be able to live a free life. Something to that effect, perhaps. But at some point, he encountered some Christians in the city. 
Um, again, we can kind of make up the story. We can fill in the blanks if we want to. You can imagine that a, a runaway slave has really no means to take care of himself. And maybe he ran into some Christians who offered to give him shelter, or maybe they offered to feed him or to demonstrate some hospitality to him. We're not really sure exactly what happens, but Anisimus runs into this group of Christians, and he actually becomes a follower of Jesus himself. And eventually he finds himself interacting with Paul. Now, at the time of writing this letter, Paul is imprisoned in Rome, so maybe Anisimus had to visit him in prison, or maybe there were some other circumstances that they met each other, but they got to know each other quite well during that time. Now, this isn't quite a love triangle, but there's a really complex thing going on here, right? So we've got Paul meets Anisimus. He's got this great relationship with him. Paul also knows Philemon because he's visited him there, and he helped plant the church in Colossae. And, and then we've got this tense relationship between Philemon and Anisimus, the slave owner and the slave. And so the aim of this letter is to return Anisimus to Philemon. Okay, you ran away from your master. You found us here in Rome. It's time for you to go back. But you can imagine that a runaway slave returning to his or her master is not going to go over very well. So Paul sends this letter to try to ask Philemon to forgive Anisimus for this wrongdoing, all based on an appeal to Philemon's faith. So I was doing some kind of research on this, and I found another letter that was written... Um, I think about 50 years later, so the very early 2nd century, by Pliny the Younger, and he was writing to his friend Sabinianus, um, Sabinianus, and he's writing to him, and you'll notice that it's actually a very similar letter. He says, I know you're angry with him, and I know too it is not without reason. But clemency can never exert itself more laudably than when there is more cause for resentment. You once had affection for this man, and I hope will have again. Do not make him uneasy any longer. And I will add too, do not make yourself so. For a man of your benevolence of heart cannot be angry without feeling great uneasiness. And so as a free Roman citizen, Pliny intervenes as an amicus domini, a friend of the master. He appeals to the master saying, listen, maybe maybe I can help smooth over the relationship here. I can help repair things so that you can actually be reconciled with this runaway slave. Now, this, the interesting thing about this letter is that although it says Philemon at the top of our pages in the Bible, this letter was not actually just a private note to Philemon, but it's a letter that would have been read aloud in his household. You need to think about this like, like a first century version of being cc'd on an email. So it would have looked something like this, you know, Paul and Timothy, right? They're sending this letter to Philemon, but we're actually, you know, I'm also going to mention Apia and Archippus and the, actually the whole church that meets in your home. So I'm writing this private letter to you, but I'm copying everybody because this isn't really just a matter for you and I to discuss. This is actually a matter for the whole church to know about. So this is an interesting dynamic for us to think about. In an honor and a shame culture, this raised the stakes for both Paul and Philemon. Now, this is something that we, this part of the world, our culture, we don't really operate necessarily by this, but in an honor and shame culture, you had to exchange one for the other. You couldn't, two different people, when they were at odds with each other, they would have to be an exchange of this honor and shame. And so essentially what's happening is Paul is, he's writing this letter and he's saying, okay, um, as a follower of Jesus, you need to accept this slave back and you need to love him and you need to show grace to him here. And so what does Philemon do? If he doesn't accept him back, well, then Paul loses face. Paul, this eminent leader in the church, loses face. Um, So there's a risk in what Paul is asking there. But also if Philemon were, you know, were to give into it, all of a sudden Philemon, maybe he loses a little bit of his standing and, and, and Paul becomes this, you know, more esteemed. And so there's this interesting dynamic taking place between these two in the midst of this letter. 
Now, the other interesting thing is that, so this is a letter sent to Philemon. All these people copied on it, but actually there were two letters sent at the same time. So there's this letter to Philemon, and then there's the letter that we know as the Colossians, all right? So this is a letter to the church in Colossae. So these two are sent at the same time. Colossians is a book that you would have uh, certainly over the years in the context of a church would have heard quoted from a lot. But these two letters are sent at the same time. And in that letter, Paul refers to Onesimus again as our faithful and dear brother who is one of you. So you can imagine, maybe Philemon gets this letter and decides, uh, I don't think I'm going to share this with the people that are copied on this. I think I'm just going to keep it to myself because I don't want to respond this way. Well, in the other letter that's sent to the whole church, Paul makes sure that he refers to Onesimus as his faithful and dear brother. There are a couple of things that are happening here. By using this familial language to identify Onesimus, he refers to him as his child. He refers to him as a brother. Paul is calling on Philemon to respond out of that relationship, not to respond out him out of the master-slave relationship that he had always interacted him with. So Philemon, he might have had close relationships with other brothers and sisters in the church, but Onesimus wasn't one of them. He was a household servant. He was the slave. And so he would have just interacted with him differently. But Paul is reminding him that actually, no, he is a part of that same family. He's my child. He's your brother. So Philemon had a challenge, but of course so did Onesimus, right? I mean, he has to go back and face the music. So he shows up in Rome. He's, maybe he gets some shelter or food from these Christians. Who knows what happens? He hears the message of Jesus. He's like, I'm all in. I surrender all. He sings the song that Melissa taught us this morning. And, and then Paul says, awesome. I'm so glad that you're willing to surrender all because now you need to go back to your slave owner because that's what followers of Jesus do. You have a commitment. You have a, a, there's a, a relationship with this person and you owe it to him to go back. So that's what followers of Jesus do. They do difficult things. And Anisimus is probably like, oh, seriously, like, you didn't, you didn't tell me that. Like, I didn't read the fine print here. So we had to face the music. Lyndon McIntyre says that true contrition needs an action of some kind. Otherwise, it's only guilt, a shallow sentiment. And so Anisimus is put, presented this challenge of going back and facing the music of the master that he ran away from. I can't even, like, begin to imagine the humility that would be required for something like that. And the risk, of course. In first century Rome, a runaway slave of caught would be expected to have one of three results. One, branded across the forehead, like an iron stamp across the forehead, marking them as a runaway slave. Uh, the second option would be being maimed, so maybe having your fingers chopped off or a foot or something like that. Or, or the, the third option, should you choose it, would be to fight wild beasts. You know, like, so pick your choice. What do you want? Like, I mean, they're all horrible results. And yet Paul is saying, okay, Nismith, you got to go back. You got to face the music here. And we're going to trust that actually your owner is not going to punish you with one of those things, but he's going to receive you as a brother. You can imagine what it was like for this slave to be going back to his master like this. But apparently he was willing to take the risk. So Paul puts uh, this letter together, and if you read it really slowly, and if you pay attention to all the different nuance there, you see that Paul, is, he's got some, maybe some, we'll call it passive aggressiveness here going on. He's like, you know, well, although in Christ I could be bold and order you to do what you ought to do, I prefer to appeal to you on the basis of love, right? So he's, he's kind of saying, like, I'd actually have the authority to just tell you what to do here, but I'm not going to do that. I'm just going to let you make your mind up. And then later on in the letter, he's like, by the way, I'm coming to visit soon. Yeah. <laughs> because you asked me to come and visit, right? So I'm going to come and visit. But yeah, it's really, it's your choice. Do what you want here. Yeah. <laughs> That's right. He's a good man. Now, he, he doesn't have this strong statement. 
And there's something about us, you know, we can look with our historical perspective and perhaps historical arrogance to scoff at Paul's passive acceptance of slavery. We can look back at this letter written 2,000 years ago and say, you know, why didn't he just come out and say, no, followers of Jesus don't do this? Like, think of all of the, the pain and suffering that could have been stopped down through history. Instead of, you know, issuing this, this subtle challenge to Philemon, allowing him to make the right choice about how he was going to treat this runaway slave. One commentator, J.B. Lightfoot, writes, the word emancipation seems to be trembling on his lips, Paul's lips, and yet he does not once utter it. He doesn't say, set him free, but he says, welcome him like a brother. And he's challenging this institution of slavery, but he's challenging it from the inside, from the ground up. There's this great line in verse 6. Paul says, I pray that your partnership with us in the faith may be effective in deepening your understanding. I want you to understand what it's like to live as a follower of Jesus in this world, and I want you to make the right decisions. I'm not telling you what to do, but I want to cast a different kind of vision for you. So a couple of weeks ago, a friend of mine, he's on sabbatical leave. He pastors a church in Toronto, and he asked me to come and speak, and uh, their church meets at four o'clock in the afternoon. So I drove downtown Toronto and spoke at his church there, and then we went out for dinner afterwards. And as we were walking back to his house, we were walking through this neighborhood, and I saw this and took a picture of it, this minivan. And I know it's hard to see, but I, I zoomed in a little bit. So this minivan was completely covered with shells. So the owner of this van had taken little tiny shells and like hot glued them to every square inch of the surface of this minivan. Um, and then the roof was even better, so I took a picture of the roof. The entire roof was covered with like thousands of little miniature figurines. So you see like, there's like a bee, like Minnie Mouse, there's like a My Little Pony, there's like an alien guy, a zebra, like, like the entire roof. And I'm just like, this is crazy. And his house was like this too. I felt like for some reason the van was fair game for photos. I didn't want to take photos of his house. But his house was like the gate and the garden and the whole front of his house was all like this as well. And I was just sitting here going like, this guy, like what made him decide to do this? And then I thought like, why not? I mean, I have like a silver Dodge Caravan, the same van that like a thousand people in my neighborhood have. Like, why don't I cover it with shells and little figures like that? Like, what is it about us that, that thinks because this is what everyone does, this is the thing that, that I have to do too? So this guy's like, I don't care. I like shells. I like figurines. I'm going to drive around all the city with them. Like, why not, right? So here we have, like, this, this conversation between Paul and Philemon. And Paul is like, he's like, I'm really not interested in what everyone else does. I'm really not interested in and how slaves and masters in, usually interact with each other. I'm not interested in what is normally done in circumstances like this because I want to challenge you to do something different. Things are different for Christians. Everyone else may be doing it this way. Everyone else may be sending their runaway slaves to be branded or maimed or to fight with wild beasts. Everyone else may be punishing them, but, but I'm challenging you to do something different. I want you to stand out because Christians are not supposed to be the same as everyone around them. I want to take a look at some of the other letters that Paul sent, because he actually talks about this theme of slavery a fair bit, um, just in, in almost all of the different letters that he writes. So Galatians chapter 3, 26 to 28, he writes to the church in Galatia, you are all children of God through faith. You're all children of God through faith in Christ Jesus. For all of you who are baptized into Christ have clothed yourselves with Christ. Therefore, there is neither Jew nor Greek, 
slave nor free, male nor female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. Now, of course, Paul knows very well that there are slaves and free people. He knows that. He's in prison while he's writing this. He is not a free person. So he knows that on the surface, there are such things as people who are not free. But both slaves and free people are first and foremost people. Let's take a look at that letter to the Colossians, um, that other one that I was mentioning that went along with the letter to Philemon. Chapter 3, verse 22 to 24. Slaves, obey your earthly masters in everything, and do it not only when their eye is on you and to win their favor, but with sincerity of heart and reverence for the Lord. Whatever you do, work at it with all your heart as working for the Lord, not for men, since you know that you will receive an inheritance from the Lord as a reward. It is the Lord Christ you are serving. And then chapter 4, verse 1, Masters, provide your slaves with what is right and fair, because you know that you also have a master in heaven. It's like the saying, there's always a bigger fish. It's like, okay, so you, you are the master in this relationship. Yeah, but God is your master. So just keep that in mind when you're playing this master role here, right? I mean, on one level, it sounds like Paul is giving in. He says to the slaves, obey your earthly masters and everything. It sounds like he's accepting this. But on a deeper level, he's saying something quite profound. He's saying, it's the Lord Christ you're serving. You know, elsewhere, Paul would write, you know, in everything, in everything that you do, like, do it like you're serving God. Do everything you do is an act of worship. Everything that you do is part of this life of faith, right? So another one of his letters, this one to Timothy, 1 Timothy 6, verse 1 and 2. All who are under the yoke of slavery should consider their masters worthy of full respect, so that God's name and our teaching may not be slandered. Those who have believing masters are not to show less respect for them because they are brothers. Instead, they are to serve them even better because those who benefit from their service are believers and dear to them. These are the things you are to teach and urge. So again, he's he's not saying let's all have a revolt here against the Roman system. Let's Let's have a revolt against the whole way things are doing and tear it all down. He's saying let's destroy this thing from the inside. Let's love each other. Let's respect each other. Let's treat each other differently. Let's level the playing ground here, the playing field here. Paul challenges the significance of a person's identity as a slave or a master. He makes it subservient to his or her identity as a follower of Jesus. Because a genuine faith rewrites the script, even if one's social position remains static, even if there's still a slave and a master, even if there's still a male and female, even if there's still Jew and Gentile, even if those categories are still there, they all serve our identity as being created in the image of God. All of you who are baptized into Christ have clothed yourselves with Christ. This is what Paul writes in Galatians. And it makes me think of, you know, school uniforms. And uh, I don't know if any of you grew up in an environment where you had to wear uniforms to school or maybe you're attending a school now where this happens. And one of the reasons that you would do this is it kind of, it does, it levels the playing field. You, you can't have people with a lot of money who can be, buy fancy clothes and you, people who don't have maybe as much money can't afford those clothes. So everyone's just going to wear the same thing out there. And it's kind of the image that comes to my mind where Paul uses this language of clothing ourselves in Christ. It's like, whatever it is, whoever you are, whatever your social position or standing or whatever is, we all clothe ourselves in Christ. We all put on this uniform. So when we see each other, we see each other as equal. We see the value of one another. We don't see the things that are on the surface and allow those things to determine how we treat one another. It reminds me of one of my favorite lines from Thomas Merton. It's a bit dense, so I'll read it through slowly. He says, the truth that makes another man seem cheap 
hides another truth that we should never forget and which would make him always remain worthy of honor in our sight. He goes on to say that to destroy truth with truth under the pretext of being sincere is a very insincere way of telling a lie. All right, try to wrap your head around that on a long weekend. What Merton is saying is that there's often, and in fact always, more than one truth. The truth for Philemon is that Onesimus was a slave who had run away. But the greater truth is that he is a child of God, that he's his brother in faith. And according to Merton, it's that truth that makes him always worthy of honor in our sight. And so as we think about the different ways that we differentiate from one another, we have to remember that all of those differentiations, they all are part of and fall under the umbrella of a greater truth, which is that all of the people around us are created in the image of God and have an estimate of value. And so in the short letter, Paul confronts one truth with another greater truth. Now, if this kind of belief led a runaway slave to return to his owner at the risk of whatever would happen, and if this kind of belief challenged a master to welcome back his runaway slave and risk the shame of not punishing him publicly, well, how does this play out in our day-to-day lives? Fortunately, We have to stretch the analogy a little bit for some real personal application. But I think it's important to remember that for an estimated 40 million people in the world, there's no stretching required. Recent statistics suggest that annually 25 million people are forced into labor, while 15 million are are forced into marriage. Women and girls accounting for 71% of modern slavery victims with one out of every four people experiencing slavery today being a child. And so in our world, in our broader world, slavery is very real. And I think at least part of what it means to become partners in God's reconciling love for the world is to grow in our awareness of the reality of our world and find ways to speak out for and act on behalf of those who cannot speak for themselves. Of course, being enslaved is something that most likely no one in this room will have to experience. But we will all find ourselves in positions of relative power and authority at different points in our lives. And what do we do when we bump up against that authority? Or what do we do when we discover that we have that authority? You may have heard about this event taking place in September. It's starting to pick up some steam. It's called Storm Area 51. They can't stop all of us. Um, If you haven't heard of this, maybe you want to get on board. Apparently, like, two million people are going to this event. The idea is that Area 51 is this top-secret U.S. base where alien secrets are kept, and someone decided, you know what, what if we just get a few million people to just, like, attack? Like, how many guns do they have there? Like, how could they really, like, stop us from discovering all these alien secrets? And so, yeah, two million people going, 1.4 million people uh, are interested in this event. And so, yeah, you can sign up and go. The idea being this, like, wait, you know what? You out there have all this power, this kind of intellectual power. You have this knowledge and you're hiding it for us. Well, we've got power too, and we're going to rise up, and we're just going to take that power from you, right? Now, honestly, probably like 100 people will show up and they'll probably drink too much and cause some problems in the desert. But, um, but the idea being that like, when someone has too much power over other people, like, it sets us off the wrong way, right? Something's not right with that. Peter Scazzaro says that power is the capacity to influence. When you have power, you can influence. And I think about my own life. I think about all the different times, in, the different seasons that I've gone through in my life, and the relative power that I've had over the course of my life. When I was a child... 
um, I really didn't have a whole lot of power or influence at all, right? Uh, my parents were the ones who made decisions for me, the clothes that I wore, where we went on vacation, the food that I ate, ate what time I went to bed. Uh, and then over the course of time, as I become an adult and then a parent myself, I am now in that position of relative power. I'm the one who determines, you know, things like that, for when my, especially when my children were younger. When I was younger, I would have been a student, right? And I realized that almost everything that I would have learned would have been just from other people. And, and as I go on, all of a sudden, I realize I'm standing up here with a microphone and I'm opening the Bible and teaching. And, and so there's an, a, a, an authority and a power that comes along with that, right? Um, I could think about the fact that, you know, at a point in my life being an employee and, and responding to, to managers or bosses, and I can think about now actually being responsible for overseeing a staff team. I can think about when Melissa and I were first married and, and we were starting a church and we didn't have any kind of income and we would have certainly classified as, you know, under the poverty line in our city and, and that's not the case now. Now we're somewhere in the middle of things and, and in all of these different aspects, where it's in the, in the home or in the workplace or economically, in all these different aspects we see there's a shift and change in the authority or the power or the influence that we have. And of course it works the other way around. We don't always gain more power in life. I mean, as you get older, your body starts to lose authority and power and influence, right? Um, I think about actually even when I was leading a student church a number of years ago, I would have had a voice to a younger generation that I don't have anymore. So I've lost kind of influence and authority that I used to have in that area as well. But it's interesting for us to think about power and the role that it has in our lives. Richard Gula, a professor, writes that Power is what enables us to make things happen or not. In this sense, everyone has power, but we do not all have it to the same degree. Power as influence is always relative to our resources. One of the most important self-examinations we can do is to name our sources of power. For we are most at risk of ethical misconduct when we minimize or ignore our power. It's an interesting exercise, and we're actually going to do this around our discussion tables later. We're going to try to take some time to name our sources of power. What are the things that, that give us power and influence over other people? Uh, Gula goes on to give a few examples. He says we can have positional power. So that's like you're a manager, right? Um, you can have personal power, meaning you're, say, really intelligent or maybe you're really good looking and there's, you know, authority or power that comes with these things. Projected power. So when someone else actually lacks something, they give you a power based on the fact that they don't have what you have. There's relational power. So maybe in a family system, maybe an older sibling or maybe the, the parent of the family has some more power there. There are cultural, um, there's cultural power. So depending on your cultural background, there may be different and unique dynamics there. And so I've been thinking about this and just some easy examples of things that I don't think about on a regular basis. Um, one would just be like how speaking English, you know, gives me power, right? So being able to, to speak English gives me uh, influence that someone who would struggle to speak English wouldn't have. So I, I need to be able to name that and, and acknowledge that. Or how about the advantages that owning a car gives me, the mobility that I have, the opportunities that are, are in front of me because I'm able to own a car, or my ha having access to credit, that someone else might not have access to credit for, and all of a sudden their opportunities are limited. And so this is just an example of my own kind of reflection, but I want us all to kind of think about this. What are the different ways uh, that power kind of shows up in, in our lives, and, and can we name it and be aware of it and acknowledge, acknowledge this, that we, these aspects in our lives? So the return of Anisimus to Colossae presents us with a challenge to consider the role that power plays in our relationships with one another and how we can act to avoid misusing the power that so many of us have. 
And this was, you know, certainly a key message that Jesus taught. In Mark chapter 10, um, uh, starting in verse 42 to 43, Jesus calls his closest followers together, and he says, you know that those who are regarded as rulers of the Gentiles, they lord it over them, and their high officials exercise authority over them. Not so with you. Instead, whoever wants to become great among you must become your servant. Right? So Jesus already, long before Paul was writing, was turning things upside down. He's saying, listen, like, this is how power works out in the world around you, but this is not how it's going to work for you. Peter Scazzaro continues, while the world practices a power over strategy, characterized by dominance and win-lose competitiveness, Jesus taught a power under strategy, characterized by humility and sacrificial service. And so in that same instance, he continues, he says, um, uh, whoever wants to be first must be a slave of all. For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. And not only did Jesus teach this, of course, but he demonstrated in that beautiful hymn from Philippians chapter 2, your attitude should be the same as that of Christ Jesus, who being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, but made himself nothing, taking the very nature of a servant and being made in human likeness. And being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to death, even death on a cross. As Jesus said, as Paul acknowledges, there's no denying that grasping for power will get you ahead in this world of ours. But we're invited to live according to a different path in the way of Jesus. Now, in closing here, one of the unfortunate aspects of this morning's Bible story is that we don't actually know the ending. We don't know what happened. Church tradition says that Anisimus was welcomed back in and became a bishop in the church and, and was martyred for his faith many years later. So that's possible. Um, there's no real evidence for that necessarily. You know, I look at it and say, we don't actually know how the story ended. Did Anisimus go back? Like, maybe he bailed on the trip back from Rome. Maybe he said, I, I, it's not worth the risk. I, I don't know if I can, can trust Philemon to treat me as a brother. I don't know if I can trust this. We don't know, uh, let's say Onesimus made it back. We don't know how Philemon responded. Did he welcome him back? Did he treat him as a brother? Did he honor kind of that part of his faith? Or did he say, no, I'm sorry, these are the rules. This is just the way our our culture goes. I'm not willing to go against our culture, so I'm going to do this. It's totally within my rights. Look, we don't know. We're not sure. And so it kind of leaves hang. it's left hanging. And it's left hanging for us as well. How will we treat those who have more or less than us? More or less power, more or less influence, more or less opportunity, more or less money, more or less education, more or less talent, more or less experience, more or less physical ability. How will we treat those around us? Paul's prayer is a prayer that I'd like to echo. I pray that your partnership with us in the faith may be effective in deepening your understanding. Right? So as we gather around to talk about this and think about this, this story, this unique kind of triangle between Paul and Anisimus and Philemon, I want us to think about our own lives. And I want that, that to be our prayer, that our partnership in the faith, that our journeying together and trying to figure out what it means to follow Jesus would help us to deepen our understanding about who we are, about who the people around us are, and what it means for us in our school, our workplace, our home, our social circles, that we would ask, are there elements of these roles and relationships that God may be calling us to flatten out? Is God maybe inviting us to consider in our own circles, in our own day, that there is neither Jew nor Gentile, neither slave nor free, nor there is, is there male or female? 
for you are all one in Christ Jesus. And I invite you to stand. I'd like to pray kind of an expanded version of Philemon 1.6 before we head out. This morning, Lord, we've opened the pages of Scripture to this kind of often neglected little piece. It doesn't really have a whole lot to do with our lives, we think, um, but it does. You know, the more we think about this, the more we realize that we need uh, our faith to deepen our understanding of what you have done in this world and how you're calling us to live in response. And so as we let these words echo around in our minds, in our hearts, as we gather around tables to discuss, my prayer is that you would help us to understand, first of all, to be able to name the advantages and the influence and the power that we have, and that we would follow your example of laying it aside and serving the people around us as truly our brothers and sisters. I pray that you would help us by your spirit to live up to this challenge in Christ's name. Amen.